Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Uh, This morning's reading will be found on page 8 in the Pew Bibles, Genesis chapter 6, beginning at verse 1 to verse 8. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals, and creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. And do turn back to our reading, Genesis 6, on page 8 of the Church Bibles, and let's pray for God's help as we turn to his word. Father, we thank you for these words that you have spoken for us. We thank you that although they are ancient words, we thank you that they are true and that they speak to us directly now. They are words that we need to hear today. And please show us what we are like and what you are like this morning. We pray this for your glory. Amen. Uh, Some time ago, Apple launched its latest version of the iPad. As always, an Apple launch was done in a very impressive and slick way, uh, very eye-catching. But uh, what caught my eye the most was the strap line they used to advertise this new iPad. Across everywhere at the launch, they wrote this, The iPad can change your world. It can change your world. Of course, that's a very clever advertising strapline because although there may be one or two exceptions here this morning, I suspect most of us long in some way for our world to be changed. Look, it might be at the global level. We prayed this morning for events unfolding in Syria and Iraq. We, we prayed about the uh, Ebola virus spreading across parts of Africa. We long for our world to change. Or it might be closer to home. Family tensions, an exhausting, stressful job, poor health, loneliness. A recent European-wide study found that we are now twice as likely to be depressed as we were 40 years ago. There'll be others who feel that life is so busy 
so demanding that we are simply hanging on. There's not enough time in the day to do the things we have to do. And we are in survival mode. We are exhausted. And that is just the students. Uh, when you get a real job students, you'll find out what I mean. Don't we long for our world to change? I do. I went out and bought an iPad. My world has changed. I can now email from the sofa, not just my desk. But no offense, Apple, that's all that has changed in my world. I wonder what we're doing to change or to try to change our world. Are we planning the next holiday? Buying the next car, the new loft extension, the new career step, a new diet, a new relationship, more friends, or for some of us, less friends, or at least different friends. I wonder what we are trying to do to change our world. You see, it's a modern question, but it's also an ancient question. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the account of Noah. But if we are to understand the message of this ancient story, we we need to go back to where it all begins, actually back in Genesis 5, where we first hear about Noah. Flick back with me over to page 7, Church Bibles, in verse 28 of, of, of Genesis 5. Genesis 5 contains an account of of the offspring of Adam from the beginning, from the fall, right through to the days of Noah. And this account of the different generations ends in in a remarkable way. Verse 28, when Lamech had lived 128 years, he had a son, and he named him Noah. And he said, he will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord had cursed. The name Noah means comfort or or perhaps rest. And do you see the cry from the Mech? We need rest. We need comfort in this painful, cursed world. And can't you feel the despair as you read through Genesis 5 and you see time and again as so-and-so lived and then he died. He lived and then, and then he died. It's a picture of, the, of a cursed world, a world facing frustration and ultimately death. Lamech was a man familiar with death. He was a man familiar with sorrow and anguish of the confusion of living in a broken world. And so he cries out, bring us comfort Now, I doubt Lamech knew what would happen next. I doubt he knew how God would answer this plea, this cry for help. But look, as we we look at the story of Noah, we have to leave behind the the Sunday school version of this well-known story. You know, the, the picture of happy giraffes eating tree leaves together or a happy family holding hands under a glorious rainbow. If we stop there, we miss the profound message of this story. This account is here to show us how our world can be changed. It's here to show us how we can actually find comfort and rest in a world that is broken and under a curse. 
And the story of Noah tells us that there is a way. There is a glorious, wonderful, profound, world-changing way to find rest. But there is only one way. And if we miss it, we will miss out on rest. Well, Genesis 6, 1 to 8 this morning is our text. And it's, in a way, an introduction to the whole story of Noah. It is, if you like, written from God's perspective as he looks down on the world he has made. It's a progress update on how his creation is doing. And as we look at the world from God's perspective, we we discover why it is that our world is so broken. We discover why it is that our world is so hard to change. Why it is that there is only one way this world can be changed. That that is our focus this morning. They, They are tough words for us this morning. And yet, if we don't understand them, we will not understand the comforts and the rest that this story offers to us. So what is the world like that God sees? Well, I've got three headings for us this morning. The first of all, uh, we see that sin is more widespread than we think. Sin is more widespread than we think. Uh, these opening verses of Genesis sound a little strange to our 21st century ears. I mean, verse 2, we read... The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and and they married any of them they chose. Who are these sons of God? Or or verse four, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Later on, they were heroes of old, men of renown. The description sounds strange to our ears. It sounds almost otherworldly. You can almost imagine that next we read about hobbits and elves just around the corner. But this is no myth this is history, this actually happened, but it's, it's history written in the language of, of that day, in that style, not in history as it's written today in our style. And there's a vagueness in the details of what's happening. I, I think this is because as the writer writes his account, he's so, he's so shocked by, by what is happening in the world that he could hardly bring himself to describe the events. It's almost as if he drapes a veil of decency over the details to, to, to protect us from some of the worst of what's happening. So what is happening in the world that God has made? Well, uh, verse 2 could refer to a, one particular human line, the sons of God, uh, marrying with a particular, another human line, uh, the, son, the daughters of men. Uh, maybe a godly line and a, and a less godly line intermingling together in marriage. Maybe the problem is, is that God doesn't like this, this mingling together. That is possible. Uh, some take that line. But in verse 5 we'll read that all of humanity is wicked. The writer of Genesis doesn't seem at this point to, to see a, a godly line and a, and a wicked line. No, everyone is wicked, we'll see. We can't be sure, but I think for me more likely that what is happening in these verses is this. In Job chapter 1 verse 6, we find that angels are referred to as sons of God and also elsewhere in the scriptures. And I think what's happening here is that uh, angels, uh, the sons of God, somehow are taking on human form and they are marrying with the daughters of men, that is humans. It is meant to shock us. It is meant to sound perverted, uh, sick to our ears. And yet that is what I think this world has become. 
it is all wrong, it's all twisted. We know back from Genesis 2 that marriage is to be between one man and one woman and a lifetime, lifelong relationship of, of love and commitment. And yet it seems here that God's good, wise, created order is being tampered with. He's being ignored and defied. And angels are coming down and marrying humans. There's been a, a confusion of the order of God's world. Which means that sin has spread beyond just what we can see, beyond just the material. It is spread throughout all of God's created order. Not just physical but spiritual, not just seen but unseen, not just our realm but the world of the angels as well. Sin is more widespread than we think. I watched uh, recently a, a Grand Designs program. It was about a, a young couple who found their dream house. It was an old house. It was run down, but they had a vision for it to transform it, to, to reclaim it. They knew it would be hard. They knew that there was uh, problems in the building, but they had a, a budget, they had a plan, and they set about transforming this uh, wrecked house. But as they started to pull back floorboards and rip off walls, they discovered that it was far worse than they thought. You see, there, there were beetles in the house, and in the ground floor, the beetles had got beneath the floorboards and they chewed all the wood. It was rotten. And room after room, they discovered that the rot was worse and worse and worse. And then they went upstairs and discovered that the whole upstairs was full of this infestation of beetles until at last they discovered the roof. And the roof was hardly standing at all. It was all rotten. And what looked like a house that was basically okay, but with a few tweaks needed, turned out to be a house that was riddled from top to bottom with decay at every level. And that is just a picture of what the world has become since God made it. This beautiful, wonderful world made it with a right order of beauty and glory has been twisted and perverted. There is sin and rebellion and it has spread throughout the whole world. We've seen the language of, of, of Genesis 6 verse 2 before. Uh, We read how uh, the sons of God, they saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married them. Uh, That that language is straight from Genesis 3. When when Eve, she saw that the fruit was good, beautiful, same word, and she reached out and she took uh, the same word for for married back in Genesis 6, verse 2. Do you see? Sight, good, take. That kind of sums up what the world is up to, isn't it? We see what we like, we take what we like, and we do what we want. That's sin, ignoring God. But that first sin, Genesis 3, is now spread throughout the whole world. The whole world's up to it. Everyone's doing it, even the angels, seeing, taking. Sin is more widespread than we think. And so comes those terrible words in verse 3. The Lord said... My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. See, the Lord won't let the rebellion go on. He won't contend with man forever. It seems that the Nephilim were were the offspring, perhaps, of this angelic human uh, mixing together. Uh, They had become the heroes of the old world. God should have been the hero. But man would try to find the alternative hero. And God says, I won't let that happen. I am the center of the world, not some human angelic hero. And so verse 5 comes as a dreadful summary of this section. Verse 5. 
the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Sin is more widespread than we think. And it's not just on the surface of our world, it's, it's in our hearts, it's in our motives, our inclinations. Now verse 5 doesn't mean that the human heart is as evil as it could be all the time. Now we look around the world and we, we do see uh, good being done, we see people being kind and caring and patient, we see people giving uh, and caring for one another. But what verse 5 does mean is that every thought, every motive, every aspiration is now tainted by a desire to live our own way and not to live God's way. Have you ever been to the supermarket and you're in a bit of a rush and you're trying to find a trolley to carry your shopping and you see one just next to the front door on its own and you think, great, it's a handy trolley and you grab it and you rush into the supermarket and you discover why the trolley had been left. It's got a wonky wheel. You know that trolley, you push it down the aisle and no matter how hard you push it straight down the aisle, it just veers off into left or right displays, into you know, a whole champagne glass display, whatever it is. There's just an inbuilt problem with the trolley. No matter how hard you try, it just will veer off. It won't go straight forward. And I think that is a picture of the human heart in verse five. It just won't go forward. It won't go straight. It won't stay on the path God has set for it. It has an inbuilt inclination to always constantly veer away from loving God and putting him first. Now, I've been asking myself this question this week. Do I really believe Genesis 6, verse 5? Do I really believe that about my own heart? You see, we can read that verse and we can think, amen. Preach it. That's true. That is great. That is just what my spouse needs to hear. Or or that's just what my annoying sibling or my annoying friend needs to hear. They've got real heart problems and they need to be challenged by this verse. But see, that's not what Genesis 6 verse 5 is saying. It says, it says, my heart is like this. This isn't a verse about someone else. Or this week, when I, when I have messed up, and I have messed up this week, um, how do I explain that messing up? And here are some of the ways I've, I've had a go at it this week. I wonder if you recognize this. I've gone for the, um, the sort of victim narrative. Um, Lorna knows about this narrative. Oh, you know, I'm really sorry for being grumpy, but, you know, I've just been so busy at work recently. I'm under a lot of pressure. You know, I, I haven't got enough sleep. I've been awake at night or, you know, I'm just, people haven't understood me. And I'm, I mean, it's not my fault, but yeah, I'm sorry for messing up, but I, I'm the victim, actually. It's not, it's external pressure. I, I'm not the, the one at fault. Or, they, or there's the sort of hero narrative, and I've tried this as well this week. The hero narrative says, look, basically, I, I'm a good guy. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the solution to, to this whole problem. Now, I might make a, a few mistakes. I might have a few blips here and there. But, but when I get it wrong, it's just a blip in an otherwise good life. The hero narrative. Uh, or there's the self-help narrative. Oh, look, you know, I used to get it wrong in the past. I used to be a bit rubbish. I know that looking back in my history, I, I wasn't a good person. But I've worked out what was going on, and, and I now know that I can fix it. I now know what I have to do to sort myself out. Kind of like a new diet, but for the soul, I can make myself better. 
So that, that bad stuff is, is all in the past now. The, the, the new me's arrived. But none of those fit Genesis 6 verse 5. I wonder if we really believe what God sees when he looks at the world and he looks at us. Sin is more widespread than we think. Well, next, sin is more serious than we think. I wonder if you've heard the story about the inflatable boy who goes to the inflatable school with the inflatable teacher and the inflatable class. He gets in trouble because he brings a pin to school and the teacher tells him off. They say to the boy, you've let your friends down, you've let your class down, you've let me down, but worst of all, you've let yourself down. Isn't that how most people view sin? Look, you know, I get stuff wrong. I'm not a perfect person. Uh, I know that sometimes I harm people around me. I let them down, and that's not good. Uh, I know that sometimes my own sin means that I let myself down. I don't realize my potential. I I keep tripping myself up with bad habits, and I know that if I was a better person, I'd be able to do more and be more productive. And so we feel a sense of loss over sin. We think, oh, sin's serious. But sin is far more serious than we think. Look at how Genesis 6 describes the seriousness of our sin. Verse 6. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. Verse 7. The Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, for I am grieved that I have made them. Sin is more serious than we think because ultimately the problem with sin is how God feels, how God reacts to our sin. He, he, the, the writer says he is grieved by our sin. That word grieved is, is used elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible. It's used in Genesis 34 to describe how the brothers of Dinah respond when they hear that she's been raped. They are grieved. It is a profoundly broken, angry word. It's used when King David hears that his son Absalom has been killed. He grieved. There's a wretchedness about the word. A word of profound anguish. It's the word we get in our stomachs, if I can say this, when we first hear that a loved one has died. It is a profound word of profound grief. Look, I think sometimes we think God's a bit like a speed camera. You know how speed cameras work. They, they stand there on the side of the road. Uh, they're alert. They, they watch. They observe. And, and when someone flies by a bit too quickly, there's, there's a mechanical reaction that takes place. The sensor scans. They spot the uh, transgression. They, they feed back to the camera. The camera kicks into action, takes a picture. The picture is captured. It's stored. It's sent. We get it in the post. And, and justice is done. The speed camera has watched accurately. But it's all mechanical. It doesn't involve emotion or or relationship. It doesn't involve feelings. There's no kind of relationship going on there. It just happens. And we think God's a bit like a speed camera, just standing there watching us, clicking when we make make mistakes. But that just doesn't get to the heart of how God is described in these verses. He is grieved. There's a, a relational dimension that happens when we sin. He feels it if I can put it that way. 
You see, we were meant to transmit to, to the world the goodness of God. We were meant to be his vehicle of blessing to the world. Instead, we become a vehicle of curse. And as we rebel against God, God's name is slandered amongst the nations. His order is messed up. And he is grieved as he sees how his world has been polluted. And there's a sense of anger. Not anger in the way that I get angry when someone cuts me up at the traffic lights. A kind of a, a white flash of anger in a second. No, this, this anger is, 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 is slow to come to the boil. It is, he is patient. He, he waits. He's waited through all of Genesis 5. But there will be a line in the sands that the world crosses when God says, I cannot tolerate this any longer. Sin is more serious than we think. Parents, I, I wonder what we are teaching our children about sin. Because when they go to school, they'll hear that we are basically good people. That, uh, that you know, it, it's, it's, it's wrong to, to tell people they're bad. It's bad for our self-esteem to tell people that, that we, we do things wrong. I was told this week by someone that the, um, apparently the junior Oxford English Dictionary has taken sin out of its list of definitions. Our world is downplaying. Our world is marginalizing the state of the human heart. And unless we teach our children why sin is so serious, well, no one else is going to tell them this. This also means that there's no such thing as a private sin. What we watch online when no one else is around is not a private sin. The pride that we nurture in our hearts, that we keep so well hidden from someone else, is not a private sin. We expend so much energy presenting to the watching world a good sort of moral person that so often we forget that God looks down and he sees everything. And that is where sin is so serious. It is God's reaction to our hearts and what we do in private. Sin is more serious than we think. And look, the Bible could have stopped at Genesis 6, verse 7. God could have said, you know, I've tried it. I've given it a go. I've given humans this opportunity. And they've made a right mess of it. And and it could have stopped. You could have said it, it should have stopped at Genesis 6, verse 7. But it doesn't stop. And that's our last point. Grace is more precious than we think. Verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I'm told that if you want to um, sell jewelry, if you want to make uh, rings look wonderful, you, you don't put them on a, on a white background. You, you, know, you, you bring out your, your, your blackest of black felt cloth and you line your shelves with black felt so that when you place the diamond ring in the center of that black, it sparkles and it dazzles. It's the contrast that wows. And verse eight of Genesis chapter six is a diamond that is sparkling in a very, very black world. Now what is verse eight telling us about ourselves and about God? Let's be crystal clear. This verse is not saying to us that, as we often hear wrongly, Noah was a, was a good guy. Do you know, in a world of bad people, Noah stood out as a good guy. And in fact, Noah was so good that when God looked down, he was impressed by Noah and he decided to help Noah out. 
If that is the right understanding of verse 8, then the story of Noah becomes a story about how to earn brownie points with God. And if we earn enough brownie points, God will step in and make our life work for us. But this can't be the message of Noah. We've heard in verse 5 that all of humanity has a wicked heart. There are no exceptions, including this man Noah. We'll find out in chapter 9 that Noah is obviously not a perfect man. He sins terribly. And crucially, later on, in that wonderful commentary of the Old Testament, Hebrews 11, verse 7, we read that Noah became the heir of righteousness that comes through faith. Why did Noah find favor in the eyes of God? Well, the answer is not about Noah. It's about God. Noah was not a good man who won over God's heart. Noah was a desperate man who experienced God's grace. Now, we'll see that Noah is a man of faith, and we'll see what that means in the coming weeks, but we need to understand that the foundation, the beginning of his relationship with God was God's intervention into Noah's life. It was God's grace as he stepped into a dark world. Verse 8 is, is God beginning to answer the plea of Lamech back in chapter 5. God is beginning to tell the watching world how it is that Noah will be the means of comfort to a world crying out for comfort. Noah's life will be the canvas upon which God sketches out the contours and shape of how his gracious rescue comes to us. As we turn and see what happens in Noah's life, where we find how God brings comfort to a broken world. Secular counselors will tell us that the solution to our broken world lies within us. We need to search harder for the hidden hero. Materialism tells us that we need to find happiness in stuff. Atheists tell us that there is no story, no solution. We must make the best of it. But Genesis 6 tells us that if we want to find true comfort, lasting relief, there is a way, a wonderful yet exclusive way, and it comes through God's grace. Look, we have to come back in the next couple of weeks to find out what that grace looks like in practice. We haven't got time this morning to sketch out the the, the pictures today. But know this. There is a plan to bring comfort to a desperate, dying world, and it is God's plan of grace. And as I finish, of course, Noah was not the man to bring blessing to the whole world. He could not. But of course, Noah had offspring. He had many sons, and there was, of course, a, great, a greater son of Noah who came into the world. Do you remember the words of that greater son of Noah in Matthew 11? Jesus, speaking to a world crippled under the the weight of sin and judgment, he said this, Matthew 11, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, rest for your souls. Let's pray. Father, we so quickly look for rest and comfort in so many false places, places that can never bring us comfort and rest. And as we cry out with Lamech, as we cry for for peace and rest in a broken world, Father, please help us to see that your son, 
our Savior Jesus Christ is the one who ultimately brings rest. Father, please tune our hearts to the message of grace. Help us to see how your rescue works. And in the coming weeks, please, may we be people who who single-mindedly establish our hope on the foundation of Christ once again. And we pray this for your glory. Amen.